Good morning, church. Man, what an exciting morning to be together as we celebrate Jesus Christ, our risen Savior. Lift His name on high for all that He's done for us. We are such a blessed people, are we not, church? I mean, what a joy we have in our life, a peace we have in our life, because we fully surrendered to Him. And He's showing us how to live this life, giving Him glory in all things. Poke the person next to you and say, man, I'm glad you're here today. That's a good feeling. We want to say welcome to our guests that are here today. Thank you for joining us, being part of our time together. We would hope that if you're looking for a church home, man, we'd love for you to think about Crosspoint being that place you could call home. To join us in telling the story of hope that is Jesus Christ. Uh, there are lots of ways to get plugged in here. One of the great ways to get plugged in is our connect group system. That's our small group system. A great way to get to know other people, to journey together, to pray together, but also to dig into the Word of God more deeply and better understand how we're called to live life it's a great way to connect to other people and to God. I hope you would consider uh, joining one of those groups. But also, just to get involved in ministry and retelling the story, either right here in uh, our hometown, uh, but maybe across the world as well at our locations in Kenya and Honduras, it would be a, a great opportunity for you to share the story, jumping in and getting involved in ministry. Well, today we're going to finish up our series as we have unpacked the story of Joseph in the book of Genesis. Uh, we're calling this series Overcomer because we've looked at how he was absolutely faithful to God and God was absolutely faithful to him. No matter where he found himself in life, what he was struggling with, he was always living a life that showed the light to God. Not on him, but to God. And so today we're going to begin in Genesis chapter 42. I hope you've got your Bibles with you. We'll be there in just a few moments. Uh, and we're going to move all the way through the end of his life uh, in chapter 50 of Genesis. Don't worry, I won't read every verse in between those eight chapters. We'll look at some highlights along the way, but it'll be a great time. As we continue to unpack this, this idea of overcoming whatever life throws your way, and today we're taking a look at overcoming ourselves. What happens in life when things occur that you didn't want to happen and maybe you're bitter about that? How do we move through that moment? You see, what, what I've known as I've talked to you and heard your stories, it's, it's mine too in some ways, but there are moments you've had in your life where you had to do something that felt unnatural. Something that felt like you wanted to do one thing, but you knew better to, to stay put or to do something totally different. And in the moment you were conflicted, you, you knew that you needed to do something different, but you were not doing that. A lot of times that comes in fight or flight moments in life. Now, many of you know that I lived in Africa in the mid-70s, and while we were there, my parents were missionaries. We had three monkeys, and you've no doubt heard the story about me being real ornery to one of those monkeys, and in return, he attacked me. Couldn't believe it. Bit me three times on my legs, blood everywhere, and so I still bear the scars of that monkey attack, but I also bear the scars psychologically from that. And so you probably know that anytime I see an animal, if it's got a lot of teeth in its mouth, it can be a chihuahua. I'm not too fond of it. <laughs> if it's something that I should run from, I try to stay away. So it's not that I hate your dog. It's just I'm terrified, okay? <laughs> That's the truth. Well, one Friday I was home uh, off from work. Everyone else in our cul-de-sac was at work as well. And two houses down from us, there's a family that owns a pit bull mix. Now, it's an indoor dog. At times it has escaped out the garage and the kids run after it and bring it back home and it's all good. 
This particular afternoon, again, no one was home, sun was shining bright, I was going to go mail a letter in the receptacle at the end of our cul-de-sac, and so I, I walk out, I don't have my keys, my wallet, my phone, I have this one letter in my hand, I'm walking across the middle of our cul-de-sac, and as I hit about midpoint, I just happen to look over at this house, and I see the pit bull laying down by the front door, they're not home. We locked eyes. And in the moment, I wanted to run back to my house with all of my might. But I knew, see, it was, it was not natural to stay there. But I knew that's what I needed to do or I was going to be in big trouble. And so I knew, I've got this letter. I'm going to give it a paper cut. I don't know what I'm going to do <laughs> if he comes at me. I'm not sure how I'm going to handle this situation. So I turn around and casually begin walking back to the house. And by now, he's walked out from the house and he's standing on the sidewalk. And he is barking ferociously at me. And I begin walking, and he's paralleling me, and I'm thinking, this is what lions do in Africa, right? <laughs> so eventually, I, I thought, what do I know about this situation? What should I do in the moment? And so the only thing that came to mind was to, to scream and yell, and so make yourself bigger than life, right? So I turn and face the dog, and at the top of my lung, I scream, you better get back to your house, or your daddy's going to give you a whooping. <laughs> that did nothing. So I, I kind of face him, but I'm backing toward the house. I eventually made it to the front door, got inside, and changed my clothes. But after that, <laughs> there are moments in your life when you have to do something that feels unnatural. You want to run to something different. You want to do something different. But the story of God implores us to make a different decision. And so as we've unpacked the story of Joseph, we've seen what he has done along his journey, even in very dark moments, he has praised God in the storm. He's followed the calling of God in his story, even when things were in the valley, when it was dark. He made a different decision than maybe me and you would have made. And so when we've looked at overcoming hurt, we've realized that we don't play the blame game, that we just... Go through the story knowing and trusting that God is there with us. When we're trying to overcome temptation, we, we know that we don't cave into that temptation because if we want to walk with God, we've got to run from the devil. If we're trying to overcome that discouragement in life, we don't wallow in our story, but realize that God is doing something for us and to us in the moment to make us stronger and look, look more like His Son. When we have successes in our life, it's not a moment in time for us to shine the spotlight on ourselves, but to shine the spotlight on God and all He's done for us in our life. And so today, as we take a look at overcoming bitterness, when people have done things to us that are inexcusable, that, are, that seem unforgivable, how, how do we move through that moment in our own life? How, how do we grab hold of how God has called us to live? Because I know that some of you have come here this morning and you're facing that very idea in your own life. Somebody has done something to you that's, that's not even worth repeating. I mean, you are, are livid about it. You're, you're upset about it, and understandably so. I mean, Tim, if, if you knew what he had done to me, you would understand why I cannot extend grace in this moment. Tim, if you knew what she said about me, you, you know why I can't forgive why I can't move forward in that relationship. You would better understand if you just knew my story. And God interacts with us in our story as He did with Joseph. And He prompts us and calls us to make a different decision than the world would make in the moment. 
that we would actually be a shining light and represent Jesus Christ in every possible way. Yes, even in the dark moments of our life, even in moments when we feel that somebody should pay for what they've done. And what I've discovered along the way is if we don't do that, if we hang on to bitterness and what people have done to us, it will latch onto your soul and eventually it will ruin you. It will rule your life. The longer you wait, Satan is happy. When it doesn't feel natural to be thankful for those moments in our life because it's in those moments that we realize God is with us and he's shaping us and molding us into a better person. Somebody that looks like his son. And as we unpack the story of Joseph over these last few weeks, what we realize is that he challenges us in the story to do some unnatural things. As we look at his story, we may have taken a different road than he took. We might have done something different. In that first week, we looked at him being a 17-year-old dreamer, which got him in a lot of trouble, eventually sold him into slavery. The brothers did. He ends up in Egypt, bought by Potiphar accused wrongly by Potiphar's wife of rape, which lands him in prison for several years. And in our own lives, sometimes we we measure God's presence in our life and we determine his presence in our life based upon what's happening in our life. There are some times that negative things are occurring in our life and we think, There's no way that God could be okay with this. There's no way that God would be with me in this moment. If he was here, I shouldn't have to deal with this fill in the blank. But see, many of us want the dream, but we're not willing to face the difficulties and obstacles that help us fulfill that dream. Many of us want to be strong, but we're not willing to lift the weights of life that make us strong. We we want everything but to suffer nothing. And Joseph goes through this in his own life as we've unpacked this, some 13 years of an incredibly difficult season. And last week, we saw him standing before the king of the most powerful nation on the face of the earth in Joseph's time. He's standing toe-to-toe with Pharaoh. Pharaoh has had a couple of dreams And Joseph there, empowered by God, is going to reveal what those dreams mean. Seven years of plenty and seven years of famine. And he offers some advice to Pharaoh, this this slave, this, this person who has been a prisoner, whose reputation isn't very high, whose character has been tarnished. He talks to that king and reminds him, this is what God is going to do. And then in chapter 41 and verse 44, it says, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, but no one will lift a hand or a foot in the entire land of Egypt without your approval. And just like that, 13 years in the valley had become a summit moment where Joseph is now vindicated. He knows God has been with him the whole time, and now God's plan continues to unfold for him. And so Pharaoh turns everything over to Joseph. Joseph begins to enable his plan, how he said things need to be gathered and harvested and stored to be ready for the seven years of nothing that is coming. 
And so they begin to, to, to put the plan in place. The famine finally hits after seven years and people begin to come to Egypt because Egypt now has the food that the world needs. Joseph is on a world stage now. And the lines come and thousands and thousands of people Joseph sees come through to get their food for their, their families. But there's a moment one day when, when I, don't, I don't know if there was a, a smoke break, a, a water break, it was a lunch break. I'm not exactly sure. But Joseph is looking at the line of hundreds of people that are standing waiting on food. And as he looks from his tent out over the multitude, he, he sees... Ten familiar faces. Now remember, Joseph is in his mid-thirties. He's dressed as an Egyptian. Would have been recognized by his brothers at this point. But as he looks into the crowd, what he sees are the ten brothers that sold him into slavery. Wow. What does he do in this moment? Because eventually they make their way to the front of the line until they're standing right in front of Joseph. And the text says in chapter 42 and verse 6, Since Joseph was governor of all Egypt and in charge of selling grain to all the people, it was to him that his brothers came. And when they arrived, they bowed before him with their faces to the ground. And you can only imagine, maybe a little smirk on Joseph's face, as he's remembering back when he was 17 and God showed him that this moment was going to happen. A reconfirmation that God has been with Joseph his whole life. And Joseph could have done things differently. In the moment, he could have wanted retribution, payback. He could have arrested those ten brothers and had them executed or imprisoned for the rest of their life. He could have given them just enough food to get back home and kick them out of Egypt, never to see them again. But as he's thinking about what to do, God, what would you want me to do? He counts 10, not 11 brothers, and he knows he's got a younger brother by the name of Benjamin. And I can only imagine in that moment that Joseph in his mind is thinking, did they do to Benjamin what they did to me? Did they kill him? Did they sell him off? He wants some answers to the question. And so he puts the brothers through several tests until finally he takes them all prisoner, accusing them of being spies in the land to see how weak or strong Egypt truly is. Of course, they deny that, but they're put into prison for about three days after they've been accused of spying. And then they're brought back out and Joseph has a re-interaction with them. And he wants them to prove that Ben is still alive. So he says, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to let you guys go back home, but I'm keeping one of your brothers as a hostage. You go back home and you get your youngest brother and you bring him back and then I'll release the other brother. They are talking amongst themselves because they know. Ben is home because dad wouldn't let him come. The last time he let one of his beloved sons out of his sight, he never came home. And so Ben is under the watchful eye of his dad. They know that. They're not exactly sure what to do. And so right in front of Joseph, they begin speaking in their native tongue, Hebrew, because Egyptians don't speak Hebrew. And what they don't know, of course, is their brother is present, who also understands Hebrew. And in verse 21, it says, Speaking among themselves, they said, Clearly we are being punished because of what we did to Joseph long ago. 
We see his anguish when he pleaded for his life, but we wouldn't listen. And that's why we're in this trouble. Didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy, Reuben asked? But you wouldn't listen, and now we have to answer for his blood. They understand the pain that they have put Joseph through. They have some inkling of the heartache that they must have caused in their brother Joseph. It's almost like when you read the text that they have themselves been in a prison for 22 years with the weight of guilt around their neck because of what they have done. And they believe in this story, in this moment in time, that their bill has come due. God is going to reckon with them because of what they have done. And in chapter 43 and 44, we read about them going home and telling dad what's happened. There's now another brother in prison. We've got to take Ben back in order to get him out. They are going back and forth. Dad doesn't want to let Ben go, but eventually concedes to that so that they can get the other brother back. And so they make a journey back to Egypt one more time to buy more food, but also to bring Ben and so they can get the the other brother out of prison. And so when they arrive, Joseph is glad to see them all. He does see that Ben is with them now. And so he organizes a, a dinner for them. They're going to have a big banquet together. And everything is prepared. They're invited in to the very presence, the tent of Joseph, the second in command of all of Egypt. And when they come in and, and the table is before them, Joseph himself seats them at the table from the oldest to the youngest. And you can imagine the gears turning in their mind. How does he know? Who's the oldest and who's the youngest? During dinner, Joseph is still working the story a little bit. And he has one of his servants. He says, take my personal silver cup and put it in the bag of Ben. Put it in his knapsack. And so they finish the meal, spend the night. They're on their way out of town after everything has been packed. And just outside the city, the city limits, Joseph sends his men out to to arrest them. They're shocked. They don't know what's going on. And they're talking that someone has stolen some things. And that's not possible. We would not. Why would we do that to someone who's been so hospitable? Of course, they go to Ben's pack, the youngest, the one that dad is afraid of losing. They open the pack and there on top is Joseph's silver cup. And the text says that the 10 brothers go crazy, literally rip their clothes They know what this is going to do to their dad. How in the world, Ben, could you take that? I didn't take it. I don't know how it got there. Because now Ben is going to be arrested and taken back to Egypt, never to see his dad again. The ten brothers, can you imagine the storyline they're trying to come up with? They don't know exactly what they should do. Interestingly, in the story, the fourth oldest brother is named Judah. Judah is the forefather of Jesus Christ. If you look at the lineage of Jesus, he comes through the tribe of Judah. And in this moment, there's someone who has been accused of a guilt, accused of sinning against Egypt. And Judah, who is innocent, steps forward and says, don't take the boy, I will take his guilt. Take me instead. And church, that's what Jesus Christ did for us. You see, we have the metaphorical silver cup in our knapsack. We are the guilty party. But Jesus comes to us and he says, I will take your guilt. I will take your shame. 
Take me instead of her or him. And this self-sacrificial moment breaks Joseph. He sees that maybe over the years, my brothers have learned something. Maybe they truly are penitent. They're willing to give up their own life for someone else that they love. In chapter 45, Joseph cannot break, cannot hold his silence anymore. Verse 1. Joseph could stand it no longer. There were many people in the room, and he said to his attendants, Out, all of you. So he was alone with his brothers when he told them who he was. And then he broke down and he wept. He wept so loudly the Egyptians could hear him, and the word of it quickly carried to Pharaoh's palace. I am Joseph, he said to his brothers. Is my father still alive? But his brothers were speechless. I can only imagine. They were stunned to realize that Joseph was standing there in front of them. Please, come closer, he said to them. So they came closer. And he said again, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into slavery in Egypt. But don't be upset and don't be angry with yourselves for selling me to this place. It was God who sent me here ahead of you to preserve your lives. This famine that has ravaged the land for two years will last five more years, and there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. God has sent me ahead of you to keep you and your families alive and to preserve many survivors. So it was God who sent me here, not you. And he is the one who made me an advisor to Pharaoh, the manager of his entire palace, and the governor of all of Egypt. Wow. I'm not sure I would have that stance in the story. He says, it's not you, but God sent me. Joseph Re-identifies what the storyline looks like, but then he reframes the story. God sent me. You really had nothing to do with this. This is God's plan in order for me to save our family and others. And you and I in our story can do the same exact reframing. We can stand in front of others who have hurt us, and we can say, you owe me, you did me wrong. Or we can say, it's God's plan to grow me or move me in a different direction. You see, you can't necessarily change your story, but you can choose the title to your story. It can be very different when we reframe the story. You can be a story of a victim or a story of victory. You can be a story of weakness or a story of strength. You can be a story of addiction or a story of recovery. You can be a story of rejection or a story of redemption. You can be a story of fairness or one of reconciliation. Joseph, in his story, he doesn't look at his brothers and say, You sold me. You owe me. What he says is, No, God sent me. And how much more powerful is that? In our story, the father Jacob eventually dies and the brothers are terrified because they believe Joseph has just been waiting for dad to pass away so now I can take my retribution. He wants, they they think he wants revenge. But in chapter 50 in verse 20, Joseph says to them, don't be afraid of me. Am I God that I can punish you? 
You intended to harm me, but God intended it all for good. Wow. That kind of heart, that kind of realization that God can be trusted that He's with you at all times. God's intentions many times are not our own intentions. We end up saying in our story, you may have done this to me, but let me tell you what God is doing for me. We say that and need to in our own story. You may have done this to me, but let me express what God is doing for me. He's an incredible God. And what we find all along is that overcoming really is the realization that the story was never about you in the first place. It's always been about God. Amen. Pointing the, the, the point to God. Pointing Showing the world who God is, how awesome He is. Putting the spotlight on our incredible Savior. That's what the story is all about. Amen. Not about you and I getting what we deserve necessarily. But see, we live in this selfie culture. And overcoming ourselves is incredibly difficult. Many of us are very involved in social media. I'm involved in social media. A study was released in 2017, a study that went over a two-year period. About 5,000 adults were measured for their health in a two-year period that were very enmeshed in social media. And at the end of that two-year period, what they discovered was a diminished psychosocial, emotional, and mental health. In other words, people were less healthy and less satisfied. Why is that, we ask? Because social media tends to make us think that the story is about us. And so while we interact in that great avenue of communication, remember the story is not about us. It's about God. Amen. It's about pointing the world to a risen Savior. I mean, Joseph, Joseph had to release the stuff that he had. The only thing he had to lean on was his faith in God and who God was. I mean, one measure of overcoming yourself is the ability to forgive and extend grace to those around you, to those who have hurt you. That is a measure of discovering how much you're becoming like Christ. We constantly replay in our own mind what people have said to us, what people have done to us. But what does Joseph say in chapter 50? Am I God that I can punish you? That's God's job. That's not my job. If you find yourself having a hard time with forgiveness, maybe it's time that you stop playing God and start trusting God. Maybe it's time you give your life fully to Him. And know that even in dark, difficult moments, He's shaping and molding you. And He wants you to show your trust in Him. See, for Joseph, it wasn't about what happened to him, but it was about how he responded. For him, it was about giving God the glory, not what happened to him. In his book, uh, A Grace Disguised, Jerry Sitzer talks about a pivotal moment in his life when his life totally changed. And if you're working through a grieving process, this is a great resource for you. It came out in 2004. But in one moment, his life absolutely changed when he lost three generations of his family in an accident. You see, a drunk driver hit the car that his mom, his wife, and his little girl were in, and all three died. And people ask him, how, how did you get through this incredible moment in your life? 
seemed to be a defining moment in your life. And his answer is always this. Losing my mom, my wife, and my daughter to a drunk driver is not the defining moment in my life, but my response is. That's the definition of my life. How do we respond living out life in God's arms even when dark moments happen in our life? And Joseph shows us it's not what happens to you in life, but the response that you and I have that set us apart as believers in Jesus Christ. Our response reminds the world who dwells in our heart. The light that we're called to shine out in the communities in which we live, the workplaces where we find ourselves, the neighborhoods that we live in, to share Jesus Christ, not only through words, but our actions. How do we live that out? How do we overcome the script that this world is trying to get us to be a part of? Because as Believer's Church, when you signed on to be a disciple of Christ, that meant you act different, that you are different. You may not be responsible for your story, but you are responsible to how you behave after the event happens. So maybe in your own life, you're going through a difficult, bitter divorce. How do you respond? Maybe in your own life, you you worked for a company for a long time, and there's a downsizing that, that eliminates your position. How do you respond? Maybe your adult children are not respectful to you and they're, they're making life decisions that you know you didn't teach them to make. How do you respond? You sit across the desk from a doctor and he lets you know that you have cancer. How do you respond? Joseph, in his story, tells his brothers, you meant, but God sent. And for us, we can take that to heart as well in our own life. The one text that we all know very well that comes to mind, John 3, 16. You see, God so loved the world that he gave, he sent his only son. And that is what we cherish in our life. That it's not about us. It's about pointing other people to Jesus Christ. To letting them know you can overcome when you find yourself in life with Jesus. He's the ultimate overcomer, the great physician, the one that will make everything right. Church, we serve a risen Savior, the Lamb of God, the Son of God. And He can make all things different for you. You and I can actually feel and know true joy and true peace in our life through the ultimate overcomer. So the call this morning is that we'll do just that is that we'll look at the life of Joseph and be reminded how we're called to live faithfully to our God. Whether you find yourself on a mountain peak, down in the valley, or somewhere in between, we give God glory in all things, no matter what. And know that he's shaping and molding you to be more like his son, Jesus Christ. This morning, as we sing this song, our our shepherds and their wives will be gathered along the wall of this room. My guess is there are some of us in here who are dealing with hanging on to some bitterness. We're trying to navigate how do we get through this relationship. And I want to encourage you as we sing that you go find one of those couples and let them pray for you and over you. That you be reminded that the Holy Spirit lives in you, that God loves you tremendously. And this body of believers is here to help you carry that burden. My hope is that you and I will embrace the life that God's called us to live in His Son, Jesus Christ. And that we'll never, ever stop shining the light on the one who is the great overcomer. Let's stand and praise his name together.